Hello, everyone. My name is Eddie Joe. Today's podcast is A Day in the Life of an Intensivist. For those of you who are not familiar with my work on social media, I go by the handle at EddieJoeMD. I'm on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and I also have a website, EddieJoeMD.com. I'm an internal medicine trained board certified critical care physician. My passion is taking care of critically ill patients. This post, as mentioned before, is going to go through a day in the life of what I do, being a critical care physician. Many disclaimers, of course, are necessary. No two jobs are alike. I personally work in a private practice where I do not have students, residents, or fellows working with me. I do take requests for certain individuals to work with me, and I generally speaking say yes, if I can make that happen for them. I do not have any nurse practitioners with me either during the first half of the day. Sometimes have them accessible to me during the second half of the day. Um, Again, this is not applicable to every job and your market may vary. I also have to specify that I'm not a pulmonologist. So I do not have a clinic and I do not have to go back and forth between different locations. The purpose of this podcast is to educate those who are considering going into critical care medicine. It's a window of sorts as to what your life could potentially be when you complete your training. It could be potentially helpful also to nurses, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, and other members of the team to to understand certain workflows. Ultimately, I want you to know what has worked for me over these three years that I've been working on my own in private practice outside of training. When I do work days, my shifts start at 8 a.m. and theoretically end at 6 p.m. I say theoretically because, you know, if it's hitting the fan, I have to stay a little bit later to tuck in the patients. Going to work, I typically arrive 10 to 15 minutes early every day to receive checkout from my partner who was there overnight. My day shifts are usually hmm, 10 hours, night shifts are 14 hours. 14 hour night shifts are rough, so I want to get these people out of there as soon as possible. I take pride in getting there early to get them kicked out before 8 a.m. I also subscribe to the philosophy where if you arrive on time, you're late. That's just another way how I work. So when I walk into the ICU at 8 a.m., I really walk in running, as much sense as that might make. There's no time to be wasted, and it is my choice every single day to wake up an hour before I leave the house to come to work, to have time to drink my coffee, read the news, or journal article, and ramp up my day. Work is for work. I know that might not be the most most popular thing to say aloud, but that's just how I function. I know a lot of people like to have their coffee at work. I am the most productive at the beginning of the day. And the beginning of the shift is where I dedicate the personalized attention to my patients, which allows me to be extra efficient. You also have to take into account that in critical care, no two days are alike. One has to be prepared for a code blue, a rapid response, a call from the ED, a call from a consultant, surgeon, or hospitalist who is unintentionally, but really, breaking up your workflow. If you've been slacking off at the beginning of the day, this wave of work will potentially wash you out. You know who ends up suffering because you didn't do your didn't do your chores or whatnot in an effective way? Your patients. Don't do that. Don't make your patients suffer. As soon as I cross the doors of my medical surgical ICU, which is 20 beds, I take a quick lap of the unit to, quote, survey the scene, end quote, of sorts. I check in with every single nurse, RT, as well as the charge nurse. They've already been there for an hour. Trust me, when you see the look on their faces... They, they they already know what's going on with the patients. They're not going to waste your time with some nonsense. They're going to be like, hey, by the way, I need you to come over here and take care of this. And they work really hard to triage your questions appropriately to the things that need to be addressed right then and there at the moment or the things that could wait until rounds. 
An example of this is a patient who, say, is in septic shock and they need a second vasopressor for refractory hypotension. Yeah, that, that person needs me right then and there. Versus a patient who has a potassium of 2.9 and they have to, quote, make the MD aware and they need replacement. Well, that, that's not going to happen right there at that moment. In this process, I also eyeball the patients. A quick glance into the rooms will trigger certain alarms in my head. I look to see how the patient is doing clinically. I take a quick glance at the ventilator, if applicable, of course. I look at all the pumps and make a mental note of everything that the patient is receiving. That includes pressors, sedation, IV fluids, antibiotics, etc., etc. Believe it or not, this whole process takes much less than 10 minutes. Remember, I am just triaging everything in my mind. The purpose here is not to fix absolutely everything. If the family members are in the room, I greet them and respectfully know that I'll be back to talk to them. Same for the patient. They're part of the team, being the patients and the family, and they need to be treated with the utmost respect. After this process is complete, I sit down on my computer where I have a critical care trained pharmacist sitting immediately to my left. This is a huge luxury, guys. Uh, Amanda, if you listen to this, shout out to you. Also, when I work nights, I have some great pharmacists, uh, such as George and Jessica, by my side as well. Shout out to them as well. But the pharmacist is of utmost importance to my clinical decision-making for the patients, and after some quick pleasantries, we get straight to work. I print out my patient list and start opening up the charts. Depending on the acuity, I may jump around looking for the sickest patients first, take care of their necessities, and triage, triage around them. Much of the work from like a clinical judgment standpoint was knocked out while I was knocking while I was eyeballing, excuse me, these patients. But this this sitting down on the chart provides me the opportunity to focus in on all details. After all, critical care is about the details. I look at all the vital signs that took place throughout the night, look at their urine output, look at what the trends are, what their vasopressors were, whether going up and up or down. And like an example of this, for example, example for example, pretty redundant. Good job, Eddie. Anyway, an example is like, let's say somebody who has been cruising on 10 Alivafed, all of a sudden they're on 30 Alivafed, and then it get, comes back down to like 12 or 14. Like what in the world happened there? I write a little note in the chart or my piece of paper asking to fig, kind, of, kind of figure that out from the nurse. A lot of times I know it has to do with like a bolus of sedation or something like that. But nonetheless, I make small notes on a, my sheet of paper, my, my brain, my patient list, and bring this up during rounds. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I look at the labs. It's not just important to see the labs from that day or that were obtained that night, but it's also important to compare them and trend them to the labs of the previous days. I say this because a creatinine that was 0.5, for example, the previous day, and today that creatinine is 0.9, it's not going to really raise any red flags in the EMR. I mean, it's not even going to turn the number red. But if you look at the trend and notice that there's a decreasing urine output charted overnight in the EMR, Things are potentially going to get worse. That patient may have some acute kidney injury that's, that's building up. And ultimately, it is our duty and our responsibility to be the best, and we need to catch these things. The imaging is also reviewed, as well as the microbiology data. You know, 
saving time would be like, for example, not checking daily chest x-rays unnecessarily. That could save you time and people say, oh, I don't have enough time to do this. Well, stop ordering stupid tests. Sorry for that little segue here. <laughs> when I review the microbiology data, this could be a little bit tricky because the sensitivities to whatever bugs these people are growing out populate at odd times during the day. We need to stay on top of that. Also, if they're receiving enteral nutrition, that's another component that I check. In addition, I look at the settings that are charted because I already looked at it when I, I bought the patient earlier. But ventilator, high flow, and non-invasive non ventilation settings are reviewed. And then I formulate a plan for all these patients to help get them off of their respective devices. The medications are also reviewed one by one and adjusted. This is where having a pharmacist next to me is extremely, extremely helpful. Uh, she leans over to me and tells me, quote, let me know when you're on bed eight, for example. The competitor in me tries to catch and address these issues before she finds them. It's a little bit of playful competition, but it's always fun. I write down on my patient list a small blurb on each patient and what my objective is for them for that day. For example, extubate with a underline and cap. Now, your patient list is your brain. <laughs> I, I crack up. You know, I crack myself up about this. But for those of you who are in practice or in training, know that you cannot lose your patient list. The process of this whole process takes me approximately up to nine o'clock in the morning. I try my best to have all my patients completed and to be completely ready for rounds at nine a.m. That's when everybody gets uh, when everybody gets there to do rounds together. The whole multidisciplinary round setup. Sometimes I have enough time to walk through the ICU a second time and knock out some of the physical examinations. So then 9 a.m. gets here, and my extremely helpful nursing staff has already spoiled me and has a computer ready to go so that we could get going. Traditional multidisciplinary rounds are done with a little bit of a spin to it. Generally speaking, I have a respiratory therapist, a registered dietitian, pharmacist, charge nurse, bedside nurse, case workers, and other members join the team and join in on the fun. To be completely honest with you, I despise those traditional four to six hour academic internal medicine style rounds. I do not do that in my practice. I mean, I would just lose my mind. In training, generally speaking, whether that be residency, fellowship, intern, uh, school, whatever, someone presents the entire case. They say something like, John Doe is a 64-year-old blah, 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 with a past medical history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, peripheral art. Oh my God, I would just, that type of stuff drives me crazy. That's, that's what makes me pretty darn happy that I'm not in, uh, that I'm not in academics. I, I, I just can't, can't do that right now. My ADD will kick me in the face. Um, none of that when I'm there. Again, I already went through the patient's chart, guys. I already went through their labs. I already went through everything. Why waste the time to make somebody else do this again? It's a waste of everybody's time, especially if the patient has been there for several days. I mean, I'd rather use that time inviting the family members to participate during rounds. I mean, just bring them in, let them ask a couple questions here and there. I also leave the door open so that the patient, if able, can listen in on our discussions Everyone is typically grateful to be part of this, even though you should let them know ahead of time when you're going to switch over to the medical lingo. Now, all the time that is not spent presenting the past medical history of the patient, surgical history, family history, all of that, is spent teaching. I'll get to more of that in a moment. I basically start off by asking the nurse, what do you need for me to help you better take care of this patient? After all, the nurse is there the whole day and has already been there for two hours by the time that I arrive at the bedside. The nurse knows what's up. 
It's a completely open forum where anybody can ask questions and make suggestions. After all, I will never pretend to know absolutely everything. I need everyone to be on the same page regarding the goals we are trying to achieve to get this patient better and out of the ICU. At the end of the day, critical care professionals are at the top of their games, whether it be nurses, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, etc. I'm just biased. I love my critical care team. From my experience, they're hungry for knowledge and always want to do their best. Open communication just benefits everybody. If you're listening to this and you're in training, don't be that clinician who says, do X, Y, or Z just because I say so, and then walk away. People are not going to be too fond of you. Typically speaking, I have a 20-bed ICU, as I mentioned earlier, and I go from bed 1 to 20. On the following day, I may go from bed 20 to 1. I do this to mitigate fatigue at the end of rounds. I mean, after all, it is pretty, it is pretty tiring. I tend to also be a bit high energy, and as you could expect, it drains me. If someone needs me to start rounds in bed 8, for example, because they're the ones of highest acuity, I go ahead and I start this. I also go ahead and flip-flop around so that the patient, excuse me, so that the nurse who's taking care of the patient in bed 20 doesn't feel neglected because they're always the last one. Now, getting back to rounds themselves. This is where the case is presented and strategies are discussed. It is my preference to use this time to teach and every decision I make tends to be rooted in data and evidence, although there's sometimes where we just have to kind of make things up. The team has to understand why we're doing what we're doing. And ultimately, I found that this leads to improved buy-in and morale. I can't say I perform a thorough physical exam on every patient at this time. Some patients, I would have done it already earlier. 9 a.m. is also the time where a spontaneous awakening trial window is usually taking place for these patients. Um, and I get to assess their neurologic exam while they're there because they're off of sedation and communicate with the patient what's going on. The ventilator settings are reviewed and I double check every single medication that the patient is receiving intravenously. Some nurses have asked me why I do this. The truth is that any one of us can make a mistake, myself included as I'm not perfect at any time. It makes me feel better to go ahead and do it. I also glance at the patient's enteral nutrition, see what rate they're receiving, and clarify when was the last time they had a bowel movement. I mean, after, after all, everybody poops. There's a book about this. See, these, these components are a little bit more cumbersome and challenging to find in the EMR, and my nursing crew is extremely, extremely helpful for this. As mentioned before, I welcome families and patients to participate during rounds. This is a good time with, well, this is a good time to present them with short snippets of what's going on. I explained to them that I'll be swinging by again after rounds to answer their questions. I purposefully try not to speak too much in depth with them at that time because it's typically like drinking water through a fire hydrant. You give them all this information, they just can't take in all that data. But what giving them snippets of what's going on allows them to do is sit down, digest it, process it. And then when I return, I explain things to them again. They'll hear the same information and will be more likely to remember. At least that's how I feel about it. Generally speaking, I finish rounds within an hour, hour and 15 minutes or so, if we're being honest. There's nothing worse, at least in my opinion, than those long eternal academic rounds. This allows everyone to get back to work quickly, myself included. The ICU, after all, is a very volatile setting. You need to be prepared for the crashing patient, new admission, or other variables that are going to alter your workflow. If an admission comes in during rounds, I go eyeball the patient, give the nurses what they need to stabilize them, and get back to rounds. 
Either way, the process of admitting a patient, transferring them, changing their gowns, switching the beds, placing them on a monitor, etc., etc., are not instantaneous. This is something that you kind of learn with experience. Now that rounds have been completed, I sit down on my computer and I start knocking out the notes. By the way, guys, I don't go to like a separate isolated wing of the hospital or whatnot. I kind of sit in the middle of the ICU like that. I have a view of all 20 beds from where I'm sitting, which helps me take care of these patients. This is where, again, the patients that I didn't examine in the morning or the patients that I did not examine during rounds, I get back to examine them as well as speak to the families. I try really hard to complete the task of writing my notes as quickly as possible and is possibly the most mundane part of the day. Here, I'm basically triple checking my work. I already looked at it when I was pre-rounding, I looked at it again during rounds, and now I'm checking myself again. I try really hard to not let myself make mistakes. It bears repeating, but critical care is all about the details. You need to be as thorough as humanly possible. This is also where I take the time that if somebody needs some sort of bedside assessment or uh, point-of-care ultrasound test or whatnot, this is where I do it. Now, moving along to family discussions. Speaking to families is one of the most important components of critical care. You could be the smartest, best physician in the world, but if you can't or don't communicate with families, you're, you're, you're basically no one, okay? Many patients in the ICU do not have good outcomes. You need to earn the trust of the families and tell them information that's accurate, honest, and done so in a respectful manner. Remember, not everybody has the level of education that healthcare professionals do. You also have to remember that patients who are in the ICU as well as their families, this is the worst day of their lives. Don't be, don't be difficult to not, uh, to not cuss on my first podcast. Ha. You know, if you don't communicate the severity of illness to the patient and their family, when something, inevitably, something bad will happen to a lot of these patients, they'll look at you like, where did you screw up? They were doing great. I always tell the families of the patients that if, you know, that this is going to be a marathon and definitely not a sprint and to take into account that bad things happen fast. Usually the things that got them into the ICU happen pretty quickly and good things happen slow. I always like to throw in, and this is a personal thing of mine, that we're praying for the best here, but we also have to be prepared for the worst. Being in the ICU is not a good thing for anybody. Now let's talk about knocking out procedures. Yes, there are emergent procedures that need to take, you know, that need to be taken care of at that exact same moment, like intubations or central lines for people who don't have access. But things like a thoracentesis or a paracentesis, well, those things could wait a bit. I try to front load my day with rounds and doing the notes and all those things so I could then take my time later on to do the routine procedures and not rush through them. After all, doing procedures that are uh, that are just routine and not emergent, doing them as quickly as possible could lead to complications and you don't want to do that. So during morning rounds, I order follow-up labs on patients when necessary. Um, you know, like serial troponins, even though the utility of those in the med surge ICU is uh, kind of meh. Um, but don't don't forget to review the labs that you ordered. I mean, at the end of the day, you should only be ordering labs if they're going to do something with your management. Also, try your best not to leave things hanging for the physician, nurse practitioner, or physician assistant who's coming in to cover nights. Don't be that person. Remember that you're going to be sleeping in your bed and they're going to be at the hospital. Don't make their life any more challenging than it needs to be. Don't leave scout work such as lines and other procedures for them to do. If they did it to you, you wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't be happy. You'd be a sad panda. 
follow up on the notes from consultants if they haven't spoken to you to, to you directly. I mean, I really, <laughs> I really dislike it when consultants swing by and they don't talk to me. I make sure to chase them down. Also, double check all the microbiology labs for the patients where this was pending, as this sometimes populates randomly during the day. You know, before signing out to my night shift partner, I take one, lo- one last walk through the ICU and say goodbye to the team and ask them if they absolutely need anything else before I go. If there's something I personally hate is to walk into my night shift and get, get asked a million questions that the day shift doctor could have answered 20 minutes earlier. Not that this happens often, but, you know, it does tend to happen. I always make sure to thank everyone for their help on the way out. It's impossible for me to do my job without my big, big team. Now, I'm not going to get too in-depth about the whole concept of signing out because signing out in private practice is quite different than academia. At the end of the day, I don't need to know if the patient has a history of hypertension. I mostly need to know what issues may arise throughout the night or what's trying to kill that patient. The other thing I do, and this is just personal, um, sometimes if I finish my, my list early, I head out to the CCU or the CBICU and try to lend a hand try to, you know, see more patients, do whatever that my my group may need to may need me to do. Ultimately, this is my first podcast. I hope you guys enjoy it. You know, usually on YouTube I would say like and subscribe, but I don't know how this all works on this format. But nonetheless, I appreciate your support. Um sorry you have to listen to ads, but you know, there should be some sort of revenue or something coming in for all that I contribute and nobody likes to work for free. But again, thanks for your support, everybody. Follow me on all my different places. Share this around. Have a great day. Bye.